0: Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 11, and we'll just read the verses 15 through 19, which are also our text this morning. Revelation 11, beginning at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and, have, and begun to reign. The nations raged But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple." There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we will consider what happens when the seventh angel blows his trumpet. These verses describe the end of history, the final coming of the kingdom of God. The end has already been described once, back in chapter 6, when the Lamb opened the sixth seal. And the end will be described a few more times in the second half of the book. And that reality reinforces the idea that the book of Revelation is not about giving a sequence of events. For the most part, there is the idea of moving through time, certainly, in the sense that it does show that history is heading toward an end. There does seem to be some kind of intensification in the battle as we move toward the end, but for the most part, the book of Revelation is concerned with the spiritual warfare that takes place in the whole period between the time in which it was written and the end of the world. But there will be an end. History is moving Along to a final day, the warfare that characterizes history will end with the final victory of the kingdom of God, with the final defeat of the kingdom of evil. And Revelation 11:15 through 19 is a prophecy of that final victory and defeat. Verse 15: Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the ultimate answer to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. One way of looking at the whole biblical story is from the perspective of the reign of God. God reveals himself at the very beginning as the creator and as the sovereign ruler over all things. But his rule is contested early on in the story when the serpent in the garden tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And from that time forward, you have a rival kingdom set up a kingdom of spiritual and human beings who defy God's authority. God, of course, could have made short work of the rebels. But then history would be very short, and God's intention for a world full of people loving and serving and worshiping him, that would not have been realized. So God implemented a plan that would involve saving a people who would serve him, but Until the end, there would always be an opposition, an opposition which would be falling under God's judgment. There are many questions concerning why God chose to do it the way he did, but the Bible is not interested in answering those type of questions. The fact is that the history of the world is about the conflict between God and his kingdom and the rival kingdom headed by Satan's and populated by demons and many human beings. The people of God are rescued from Satan's kingdom. Paul teaches this when he writes in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So God and his people are on one side. Satan and his people are on the other side. The conflict between them is the meaning of history of the world. God does that, and through it all, rather, God is at work reestablishing his sovereignty or his rule or his authority over the whole world. He does that by saving some people and by sending his judgments on those who refuse to submit to him. This conflict was at the center of Jesus' ministry on earth. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, announced him repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was Jesus' message as well. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is about God ruling and people obeying that rule. To the degree that God's kingdom comes, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and wherever God's rule is followed, people flourish because God Created the universe to flourish when his rule is obeyed. God enlists his people to work with him towards the coming of his kingdom when Jesus tells his disciples to seek the kingdom first in their lives. One of the sayings of Jesus that highlights the spiritual battle involved in the coming of God's kingdom is Matthew. 1228, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' earthly mission was a conquest, and his casting out of demons helps us to understand what this conquest is was all about. Jesus' mission was about defeating the power of evil, which had enslaved human beings. He cast out demons by his almighty power. But what the whole story of Jesus shows is that his ultimate victory over the power of evil took place by his death and resurrection. By dying for the sins of his people, Jesus freed them from the power of Satan Jesus' death and resurrection are at the heart of God's victory over sin and Satan, they are at the heart of God reestablishing his rule on the earth. 1 John 3 8 tells us the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The book of Revelation describes the battle between God and his people and the devil and his people. It has a lot to say about how the followers of Satan persecute the people of God. It has a lot to say about how, the, the, how God protects his people and how he pours out his judgments upon those who refuse to repent. And so the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil comes to a climax in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation describes for us a number of times how God will bring the world to an end with the final and ultimate victory of his kingdom. And that is what the voices in heaven are celebrating in Revelation eleven fifteen, when they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice that they are singing about God and Christ reigning forever and ever. That is what the, the, the kingdom language of the Bible is about God's reign. God, of course, reigns over all, and not even Satan can do anything apart from his permission. But the kingdom of God is where God's reign is acknowledged and where rebellion has been overcome. God will be reigning fully when every knee bows at the name of Jesus and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And where God reigns, there is great blessing for those who obey. Think of the prophecy in Isaiah 9 concerning uh, the promised Messiah and his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Where Jesus reigns and his people obey his authority, there is peace, there is blessing beyond anything this world has ever seen. This is the hope held out in the Bible for all who have by God's grace submitted to God and received his salvation in Jesus Christ. God reigning and his people enjoying the benefits of that reign. God is reigning. Uh, Sin has been defeated. All opposition to God's reign has been defeated. And God's people experience the blessedness of living under God's rule. It's always been a big part of the message of the Bible that where people submit to the reign of God, there is joy and well-being and peace and love. That's experienced in this life already in a partial way, but it will be experienced in perfection when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Romans 15:17, Paul writes, "For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." And Isaiah 48:18 powerfully expresses the relationship between submitting to God's reign and blessings. There God says to Israel, "Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river." and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. God's kingdom is where God's people do keep his commandments, and so their peace is like a river, and their righteousness like the waves of the sea. It is opposition to God's rule that brings death and destruction, The kingdom of God is about bringing people to obey him through salvation in Jesus, and it is about God's victory over those who refuse to submit to him so that they no longer have any influence in God's world. And so this is one of the ways that the book of Revelation describes the culmination of God's victory over sin and evil, And the final victory of the kingdom of God. Loud voices in heaven announce, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And this announcement is accompanied by praise in heaven. Verses 16 and 17 And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The 24 elders represent the people of God of the Old and the New Testaments. They are sitting on thrones, which points to the fact that they share in Christ's reign. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, the worshipers in in heaven celebrate the fact that the people of God who have been ransomed by Jesus' blood have been made, quote, a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. It's really quite incredible. That God gives human beings such a significant responsibility in His world. At the very beginning, He gave us a task of having dominion on the earth. That responsibility carries through into salvation and then into the consummated kingdom. Citizens of God's kingdom are given authority and honor, they share in Christ's glory. And in his rule. While in this life, people of God are often treated as the scum of the earth. But the book of Revelation here is giving the saints a picture of their future glory. In the picture of the 24 elders who are sitting on thrones around God's throne. But because they have been delivered from their sins, they don't compete for God's glory. They're sitting on thrones They have been glorified, but they fall on their faces to worship the Lord. They give thanks to God. They acknowledge God's power and his eternity. They refer to God as Lord God Almighty. And the context here in the book of Revelation is the warfare against the opponents of God and of his people. And so the attribute that is in the foreground in their worship is God's power. He is the Lord God Almighty, and he has taken his great power and begun to reign. In contexts that focus on opposition to God and his people, God's almighty power is often prominent. The opponents of God are often powerful compared to God's people on earth. And we see that in the earlier part of this chapter in in the book of Revelation, where the nations, they trample the holy city, where the beast rises from the bottomless pit and makes wars on the saints and conquers them and kills them. The church mostly has little earthly power. The persecution that is so common is possible because the church is weak and the haters of the church are powerful but through it all we sing of God's almighty power. And verses like this one before us this morning encourage, encourage us with the assurance that the time is coming when God will act by his almighty power and he will establish his reign over all his enemies. These verses here speak of God having already done that. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the Bible speaks in this way more often. It can speak of something in the future as if it were in the past, as if it had already happened. It simply underscores the certainty of God's promises. By means of prophecy, we can look into the future and we can see the future as if it has already happened. And that's what's going on in these verses. Even as we are still in the midst of the struggle, through this vision, we can gaze into, the f- gaze into the future and see God taking his power and beginning to reign. So the 24 elders representing the church worship God by singing of his almighty power. They also worship him for his eternity, They speak of God who was, who is, and who was. Now that's very interesting there. Normally when we speak of God as the one, when the Bible speaks of God as the one who is and who was, it continues, and is to come. God is often worshipped in the Bible as the eternal one, who was and who is and who is to come. He is eternal. He is the God of the past. He is the God of the present. He is the God of the future. But here, it just says... It just refers to the God as the one who is and who was. The reason the future is now, the reason for this is that the future is now present in this vision. All that is included in the idea as everything that is included in the idea of God of the future has been fulfilled in these verses. And so the song simply Sings of the God who is and who was. The future has become the present. The promises have been fulfilled. God's purposes have been realized in the vision that is described in these verses. And it's very interesting to think about the implications of that. The Bible is a very future-oriented book. Right from the very beginning, it is always pointing us forwards, towards what God is going to do. The biblical story is driven by God's promises and his prophecies. The present always has things about it that are unwelcome and that are hard, and God speaks of a glorious future for his people to comfort them and to encourage them. It appears that when God's kingdom comes In all its fullness, the future will no longer be as important. We will celebrate all that God has done for us in the past. We will rejoice in all that God means for us in the present. But the future will be much less significant because we will experience the fullness of life with God in the present so much of our <clears throat> so much of our looking forward is driven by the fact that God promises us a better future but when the kingdom comes in its fullness there will be no reason for us to long for the future because the present will be so wonderful and so we will sing of the God who was who is and who was but we will no longer sing of the one who is to come because he will have come and brought the glorious future into the present. Life will be so wonderful, so complete, that we will live much more in the moment and we will not experience the same longing for the future that we do in this life. Verse 18 speaks about the final judgment. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Some of the language of this verse is rooted in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of those Old Testament passages which is mentioned very often in the New Testament. Psalm 2 begins with these words. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And later on in the song, God speaks to his anointed who is fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Our text here in Revelation picks up on this and speaks of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The kingdom of God involves the reign of God's anointed, who is Jesus, and it involves Jesus defeating the enemies of God's kingdom. Our text in the book of Revelation also speaks of the final judgment, the final judgment is a reality of which the Bible often speaks. And it means that how we live in this life matters. If there were no final judgment, nothing would ultimately matter. The reality of the final judgment means that how we live in this life has consequences for where we will spend eternity and how we will spend eternity. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 Paul writes, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Now, for the for believers, the terror of that judgment is taken away because they have already been declared righteous, because Jesus has paid the penalty for their sins, and also because His perfect righteous life fulfills all of their requirements before God. That's the glory of salvation in Jesus. And the good news is that it is freely offered to all who hear the gospel. But the Bible makes it clear that there are many who refuse Jesus, and those who do will face that judgment on their own. They will have to pay the penalty for their own sins. They will be held account and suffer the consequences of refusing to turn to the Lord. Passage speaks of destroying the destroyers of the earth. Those who reject God are described as the destroyers of the earth. This is not referring to um, ecological destruction, it is referring to the destructive power of sin. Rejecting God's rule means death and destruction. The destruction of the earth here is comprehensive. It refers to all the results of sin in the world. And God will destroy those who were the destroyers of the earth. And this destruction is not annihilation. God describes the destruction of the wicked and what it looks like in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The biblical teaching about the final judgment for the final punishment for those who refuse to repent is not a pleasant topic to think about, but It is not an uncommon topic in the Bible, and so we must not ignore it. This is one of the biblical motivations for repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus. The good news of salvation in Jesus is presented against the backdrop of the bad news of the endless suffering of those who refuse Jesus. This text, which speaks about the final judgment, also speaks about the rewarding of the servants of God. They're described as the prophets and the saints, those who fear God's name, both small and great. The biblical teaching about salvation is that salvation is a gift of God's grace. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus' works. But the Bible also teaches that the Lives of saved people are judged, will be judged, and are rewarded in the kingdom of God on the basis of our works. We're not saved by our works, but our works are judged. And what we have done in the life of service to God will make a difference as far as our final reward is concerned. It's one more motivation for us to be zealous In serving the Lord, there are many motivations to be zealous in serving the Lord. There is a motivation of love, of thanksgiving. There's the attractiveness of the life as God intends it to be lived. There is the reward that comes from living that life itself. The reward is partly in the living of it. But there is also this motivation that we will be rewarded in heaven according to. To our works. And it's encouraging that both small and great among God's servants will be rewarded. This is an encouragement for those of us who serve the Lord in obscurity, which is most of us. There are those who are called to prominent ministries in the church, and we are grateful for them. But most of God's people serve in obscurity and ordinary ways, seeking to be faithful in worship, being a contributor, uh, a contributing member of a faithful con- congregation, raising children in the fear of the Lord, showing love to the needy, and so on. Both small and great in the kingdom shall have their reward. The last verse has to do with the intimacy between God and his people. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. Temple is the meeting place between God and his people. In the Old Testament, it was the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people, but it was also about the separation between God and a sinful people. Only the priest could come into the most holy place of the temple. He could only come there once a year. He had to bring the blood of a sacrifice. The temple of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament emphasized both God dwelling in the midst of his people but also his holiness and the, necessary, the necessity of his people to keep their distance. Jesus' death on the cross opened the way into that most holy place when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped open, symbolizing that the that believers have access to the very presence of God. And that's the meaning of this last verse. When the kingdom comes with all its fullness, the people of God will have free access into the presence of God, and that will be at the heart of the blessedness of the final state. The last sentence has to do with the final judgment again. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. In the book of Revelation, these symbols are associated with God's judgments upon the wicked. And so what we have here in this last verse is the close proximity between God's welcome of his people into his presence and the judgment of God upon the wicked. And that's a feature of the whole Bible. God's salvation of his people and his judgment upon the wicked are never far apart. The Bible is a story of salvation and of judgment. God reveals himself as a God of love and grace, but also as a God of holy justice. Certainly, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the death of the wicked is a prominent theme in the story. Right through the Bible, and certainly in the book of Revelation, the message is about God's salvation of his people and his judgment upon those who refuse to submit to him. The God whom we love and worship is a God who punishes sin. His plan for the renewal of all things includes both salvation and judgment. It's highly significant that when God revealed his glory to Moses in that very significant story told in Exodus, he spoke both of his mercy but also of his judgment. Moses had asked God To reveal his glory. And God said in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the 3rd and 4th generation. This is how God reveals himself to us in the scriptures. This is the God we love and worship. He is a forgiving God, but he does not clear those who, do, who he does not clear those who reject his mercy. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you also for this passage from your word and for the way in which you speak to us, encourage us in it. Lord, we do worship you as the God who has revealed himself to us also in this passage, both in your salvation and in your judgment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word and to avoid worshiping an idol of our own imaginations. That we, help, we thank you that we can live in hope and that a passage like this is in your word for that very reason. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, strengthen our hope and our joy, our anticipation as we think about the fullness of the kingdom of God and how you are working toward that. You are working toward that and the, the full coming of your kingdom is an absolute certainty and yet it's not there yet and, the, and we are called to <clears throat> live in this world and to struggle the spiritual warfare in various ways. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live with that hope, that anticipation, that forward-looking perspective as we go through the struggles and trials and the blessings of this life. Thank you for this, this comprehensive vision that you give to us in your word for us to live by. Thank you for the way in which it gives meaning to our lives and encourages us in our difficulties and challenges And we pray that you would help us to live by it, day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.